constitutes the end. It actually is the exact middle of the book. And from that point forward, throughout the rest of the book of Mark, Jesus' journey leads him to Jerusalem, the cross, and of course, the resurrection. But before Jesus takes his first steps toward Jerusalem, he slipped away with three of his closest friends, his closest disciples, that they might see a snapshot of the radiant glory that would follow his suffering. And what they would see would give them hope in the midst of the suffering that their own lives would also include and bring. I'll remind you what I said last week, that the road to fellowship with Christ is fellowship in his suffering. Be encouraged, though. And I want to encourage you through the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. His glory is our glory. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this beautiful passage that we're going to study together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the snapshot you gave to Peter, James, and John. Thank you for making your glory abundantly evident and overwhelming on that mountaintop that it might provide them hope and subsequently us hope. Would you help me, Lord, even... Strengthen my voice this morning, but would you help me to preach clearly, plainly, and with power from above, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me direct your attention, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read straight through, starting at verse 1, and read all the way through verse 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as, is, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. May he add richly to the reading of his word. A.T. Robertson said that one of the first rules of scriptural interpretation, so this is, a, this is a study help as you're opening up God's words, is that you, one should probably, they would be wise to ignore chapter and verse divisions as they study the word. This is one of those cases. Verse 1 of chapter 9 serves as a hinge that connects both sides of this apex passage. I told you last week was the apex, and now we're kind of climbing back down the mountain toward Jerusalem, but I don't want you to see them as this is a, this is a passage, and this is a passage. We must see these both as one passage that Mark is including and Jesus is, is giving for our edification to see the point that he is trying to make. So notice what Jesus said to the listening crowd and disciples. I'll remind you that Jesus has just rebuked Peter. He's just offered a teaching point. He's just offered four reasons to be a disciple of Christ and to follow Christ. And he gives that teaching to not only the disciples, but also to the crowd. So with that as his audience, the next thing out of his mouth are these words. This pronouncement found in verse 1. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does Jesus mean with these words? I'll tell you that there are a lot of opinions about what is being discussed and what he's talking about here. But you can kind of wrestle with some of these things and kind of let them bounce around in your own mind. Is he saying that there are some within the sound of his voice who would not die until he returns with power on the last day? I mean, after all, that appears to be the context of verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. It does seem to be the context of verse 38, but not the context of verse 34. And I personally don't see this as a viable option because think about what Jesus himself said, that not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father knows when that day is going to be. So he cannot allude to something as far as a date on the calendar and the evidence of things of what they will and will not see until he returns. It's just a guess. So Jesus probably definitely could also be referring to, so I'm throwing out another option for you, one that's viable, but one that I'm going to say, "Eh, probably not the one that I'm choosing either, but just to kind of inform you what could be going on, that Jesus could be referring to the entire process that will lead to his ultimate glorification, his ultimate exaltation and his resurrection, his ascension, and his giving of the Holy Spirit in power at Pentecost. It could be that he's saying, some of you here aren't even going to taste death until you see that happen in glory. And, and of course, they did see that. However, it seems most fitting to me that Jesus' pronouncement here 
is referring to the front row seat that three of that crowd is going to see, three from his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, um, that they are going to be given a front row seat to the illustration and dramatic viewing of his glory um, coming down. So I just kind of want to lean into that just a moment. That's verse 1. The heart of this text occurs in verses 2 through 8. But before looking at the main event of the passage this morning, I want to direct our attention to the end of the text, which in this case really reiterates Jesus' main point. The point that I tried to stress last week, how Messiahship and our underst- a correct understanding of Messiahship leads to a correct understanding of discipleship. In other words, this paradox that exists whereby we as believers recognize and realize that those who are called to follow Christ are called to come and die. It's a paradox. Before glory, there will be suffering. It'll be true in the life of the Messiah. It's why he came. It'll be true in the life of the disciples. It need not be a mystery if and when it becomes true of us. The Messiah's road to glory would be through suffering, not military conquest. Disciples that would come after him, verse 34 of chapter 8, must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. Jesus led the way and carried the cross, and we, those who have been purchased by his blood, are to tread in his steps, carrying our own. So point two takes us to the end of the passage, because I want you to see what he alludes to after this illustration of his glory. Number two, the precursor. So I'm going to come back to the time on the mountain, but for now let me just say that when their time on the mountain was concluded, Jesus began to make his way down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he commanded them what he commanded others throughout um, the book of Mark. He says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. And then he says, don't tell anyone what you've seen until... The Son of Man has risen from the dead. Isn't this interesting? Yet again, this command comes up. I mean, centuries after this event in, in our lifetime, in the lifetime of my parents, more than likely the lifetime of my grandparents, vacation Bible schools that littered the land would be teaching kids the song, Go tell it on the mountain. But here, in our passage... Jesus is clearly charging the three not to tell anyone about what they've seen on the mountain. Verse 10 tells us this. So they kept the matter to themselves. They did have questions, however. And they asked Jesus these questions, taking advantage of their alone time with them down this massive mountain. Hey, Jesus... What do you mean by this whole rising from the dead and 
And then one more thing while you're at it. I hate to press in and bother you with too many questions here. But um, why did the scribe say that Elijah must come first? Well, you'll, refine, you'll find Jesus' response starting in verse 12. Let me, let me just jump right there and read his response. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And, and how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus is connecting the dots with his disciples. If you remember back to Zechariah as John the Baptist's dad. When the angel of the Lord announced to Zechariah the priest that he and his wife would have a child in their old age, he was told about the future ministry of his yet unborn son. And about his son who would be named John, we're told this. And this is from Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, people, for the Lord a people prepared. Now, the angel of the Lord is borrowing from the words of Malachi chapter 4, the last few verses of that, which, which left ringing in the ears of all who had read the last words of Malachi that there is hope coming. John the Baptist was not the reincarnation of Elijah, but he was one who served in the spirit and power of Elijah. And, and coming down from that mountain, Jesus let his disciples know, Elijah has come. And he's come in and through the ministry of John. So more pressing to our context of this week and last week, both sides of this apex mountain, is what the people did to John. Elijah, think Elijah, and I mean Elijah, Old Testament Elijah the prophet, Elijah had suffered in the Old Testament at the hands of wicked Jezebel and her spineless husband, King Ahab. And John the Baptist, no doubt, we've just studied this in our walk through Mark, suffered at the hands of another wicked king and his wife. The disciples, more than anyone, well, not more than Jesus, but They've got close proximity to this. The disciples were painfully aware of what had happened to John the Baptist when Herod ordered his execution. They're connecting the dots when Jesus says, and they did to him what they did to him. Now Jesus is trying to help the three see this. That if it happened to John, who prepared the way for Jesus by calling the people to repentance into holiness it should be no surprise to you when i say the son of man should also suffer many things and be treated with contempt that's what we see in verse 12 and you and i are wise to follow this train of thought to its logical next step conclusion disciples that would come after christ 
disciples that would come after the twelve, disciples that are living in our midst, must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. Jesus, again, I'm sorry for the broken record, but these, this is the main crux of the point. Jesus led the way and he carried his cross. And we, as followers, purchased followers, are to tread in those steps. Now, up on that mountain, Jesus had given his inner circle a beautiful gift. Consider the gift that he had given them. They were being, the given, they were being given the gift of hope for the coming days when they would see their Savior, when they would see their Master, when they would see the rabbi, the teacher, suffer unmercifully at the hands of whom he's just said he's going to suffer from at the hands of in Mark chapter 8. The, the leaders, the priests, and the scribes. And, and it would also provide them the gift of hope for themselves as after his resurrection, they too would suffer for the cause and sake of Jesus. What the disciples did not yet understand, however, and what we are prone to forget, is that you can't have the, you cannot have the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, the radiant display of God's glory beaming from the inside of Jesus, lighting the sky. You can't have the radiance and glory of the Mount of Transfiguration without also it being conjoined in us having the hill of Golgotha upon which Jesus was crucified. Why? Because suffering is going to be the precursor for glory. Mark Jones writes, and this is beautiful, it's in his book, Knowing Christ. There is glory in the cross. And there is the cross in glory. Well, let's move to the heart of this passage, the very center point of this section. And I want to point out five things as we climb this mount of transfiguration with Jesus and the inner circle of his friends. So I've given you this because every preacher, good or bad, needs some alliteration going on. And number three is the presentation. And by that I mean the presentation of God's glory in and through his son Jesus. The light of that projector on my face, I'm sure stuck a letter on my face as well, which reminds me that every Tuesday of my life this semester, I've stood in front of the children at Boynton Elementary, and on occasion, the little projector will shine a light in my face, and without fail, the kids will ask, hey, why do you have letters on your face? So I just want to say, refer to last week's answer. So I just thought about that as I was... The presentation, verses 2 through 8. Notice first, a change. A change. Look at verses 2 and 3 as I read this. And after six days, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth 
could bleach them. Now, some interesting things are going on here. For the first time in the whole book of Mark, and the last time, Mark uses a time reference with great specificity. So in other words, what has been general in his time references leading up to this point, now Mark uses language, and after six days, Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. So we're given some events here, six days, and certainly mountain, and a small group of people making this journey. These three things are, are meant for us. These are, these are clues for us. And they're meant as clues to connect what's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration to what happened on Mount Sinai, the story of which Miss Ruth Ann led us in reading congregationally earlier. That passage was Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, God instructed Moses to bring three leaders as well as 70 elders to come with him a, a distance, but not up to the top of the mountain, come with them a distance that together they might worship God. And at that time, Moses told the people all that God had said, and they in unison responded back to him, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Soon after this, God told Moses to come up to him on the mountain where he was to wait. And he was to wait there so that God could give him the, what we have is the Ten Commandments and the law, the, the law which God himself had written on tablets of stone. When Moses went up that high mountain, not the same mountain, but the high mountain, the cloud covered the mountain signaling the glory of the Lord. And it overshadowed it, and it overshadowed Moses. This would have been quite a scene, not only for Moses in the midst of it, but for all those who are surrounding the mountain, looking up and seeing that cloud overcoming Moses and settling there. And it does so for a specific amount of time. Exodus chapter 24, verse 6 says this. The glory of the Lord dwelt... On Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. These similarities are not to be missed when we read through the story in Exodus 24, as well as the story of the transfiguration of Christ. Forgive me. The mountains were different, as I said, but the outcome was the same. God's glory is being put on full display. It hovers. And it was both awesome and terrifying at the same time. Mark chapter 9 verse 2 tells us that in the midst of that, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now from this word, transfigured, we get our word metamorphosis and we get it from the same word in Greek that, um, from which is derived the word transfigured. Okay, So that, that's what's going on here. The reason I bring that up is it's not like Jesus is up there 
hiding behind a stone and then coming out with a mask that he's put on and brand new, really, really, really bright clothes. There in front of Peter, James, and John, Jesus is radically changed from the inside out. Kent Hughes writes and explains it this way. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory, which was always in the depths of his being, rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. So full was the change that even his clothing was impacted. The text says that his clothing was more intensely white than any laundry professional could possibly have manipulated. You say, well, laundry professional is not in my text. No, but the language in Greek does speak of a fuller. And that fuller is one who would have had the the chemicals necessary to bleach clothing to as close to whiteness as they could get. And no fuller on earth could get his clothing as radiantly bright as it was because it was emanating from within. Thinking back to Moses. Remember old Moses? He'd spend time in the presence of God and he would be so impacted physically by that that he would reflect the glorious radiance of God. So much so that he would even wear a mask in concealing of of the digression of that as well as just to, to keep the brightness from being such that just brought more and more and more attention to him. The point that I want to make about that is not uh, about what he wore, but the very fact that his was a reflection. What Moses reflected from his facial complexion, Jesus now emanated from his inner being. And it's terrifying to the guys. Notice the second thing going on on this mountain. We've seen a change, and now I want you to notice a visit. Verse 4 tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared, and they were standing there talking to Jesus. Mark doesn't include the content of their conversation. For a hint of the content, we don't have the details, just a hint of this. We refer over to Luke chapter 9, verse 31, where we read that they, Moses and Elijah, were speaking to Jesus about his departure. If you do a little Bible study on your own there, and you go to that, and you look down at some textual notes below there, as, as it kind of points to it, may even have the word exodus instead of the word departure. The people who had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years were delivered by God and given the land of promise. Moses had been the earthly mediator used by God to lead his people through a great exodus. Moses, as you know, he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land as a consequence for his sin, but he was buried by God in a place that no human was made aware of. Elijah, on the other hand, 
had an exodus of his own, a departure of his own. Elijah's exodus involved him never tasting the pains of death. God ushered him into glory dramatically in a chariot of fire. Both departures, both exoduses, if you will, both of Moses and of Elijah, point us to Jesus, point us to Christ. And his second exodus, in which he would travel through death, through resurrection, whereby he would be eligible and qualified to serve as our mediator, the mediator between us and the Father. The specifics of that conversation we don't have, but no doubt it contained elements of all of this. There was a change. There was a visit And there was also a cloud. We saw that cloud in Exodus chapter 24. Now we see it in Mark chapter 9. And quite a cloud it is. As we reviewed from Exodus chapter 24, when the cloud enveloped them on the mountain, it manifested the divine presence of God. Think about this cloud and think with me just kind of quickly. I'm I'm making a lot of assumptions here by just touching on some things here. But in the Old Testament, there was the pillar. This was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that had gone before Israel in the wilderness that led them to where they were to go. It was the cloud that, that passed by Moses. Moses had begged God, Let me see your glory. And God hid Moses within the cleft of the rock. And he said, you can see as this cloud passes by. Once it passes by, you can see my glory when you look upon the shadow of that cloud as it passes by. It was the cloud which landed upon and engulfed the tent of meeting. And it was the cloud that filled the tabernacle and it filled Solomon's temple. So strong was the existence of God's glory when these two fillings took place that none of the church leadership, no humanity, could enter. Finally, it was the same cloud. The same glory that Ezekiel the prophet saw as it would rise And depart from the people due to their gross apostasy. Its place of departure was the Mount of Olives. But now, in Jesus, up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the cloud and the glory has returned. It would lead John to write the words in John chapter 1 verse 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. When was that seen? On that mountain. 
It would lead Jesus at the end of the festival of booths to stand up in front of everyone and say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This cloud is that man. He has come. He has come. Peter doesn't know what to say. Scared to death, he does blurt out the first thing that comes to his mind, and frankly, it's probably a good idea what he's thinking about. He tells Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, three booths, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. My focus is not on what Peter suggested this morning, but the response that Peter heard out of the cloud. But before I get to that response that Peter heard out of the cloud, let me just say, Peter has not yet come to the realization that Jesus has come to tabernacle with his people. And Jesus continues to tabernacle with his people. For now, let's draw our attention not on Peter's suggestion or even misunderstanding, but the voice from which he heard, the voice that he heard from that mountain, I should say. This brings us to the fourth thing that I want to show you, a voice. You'll see what he says in the words of God said this, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do you remember what the people said to Moses in response to him relaying all the things that God had told him to say to them? Everything that you're saying, we will do and we will obey. Now listen, this voice no doubt would have been encouraging to Jesus. Jesus, who now has let his disciples know the first of three times that he's going to tell them what is ahead of him. His suffering, his death, his rejection. So no doubt, hearing that voice would have been an encouragement to him. But the statement from God is not directed to Jesus, but to the three. Jesus has already heard these types of affirming words given from his father in his presence to affirm him. And you'll recall that that happened just before his earthly ministry began. At that time, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And no doubt God was pleased with Jesus' willingness to follow him in obedience. But this time, the voice and the directive is for others. And it would mark them forever. Peter, James, and John are hearing these words and the words that they are hearing are the words of God that said, this is my son, listen to him. So impacted was Peter that he alludes to this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Hear the words that Peter writes in his letter. 
He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father. So Peter's writing about this instance about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we have Peter's treatise on the inerrancy of Scripture and that which is to be taken in, eaten, and consumed by us that it might make our paths straight. Peter, James, and John's discipleship would not be built upon the spectacular vision that they experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. But their discipleship, like ours, is to be built upon the inspired, unchanging Word of God. God's affirmation of Jesus and instruction to Peter, James, and John to listen to Him is rightly applied to us. And we listen to Jesus as we take in, drink, eat, consume, and live by the holy, inspired Word of God. That was the voice. I told Shan nothing about this outline because more than likely she would have seen this next one and said, I don't think you want to use that word, which is not a word. But I used it anyway because I didn't tell her I was going to do it. Alone. Alone. It's not a word when you hyphenate it right there, but I wanted to kind of punctuate this for us. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I've already told you that Peter suggested that he build booths for the three that were standing before him earlier. But hear this. There's no plan. There's no place, I should say. There's no place in the plan of redemption for Moses and Elijah to be on the same level with Jesus. When the cloud lifted, Elijah and Moses had vanished. Jesus alone remained. For Jesus alone was qualified. Jesus alone was acceptable. Jesus alone was able to shoulder the burden of the role of substitute for which he came to fulfill. Moses and Elijah left. Jesus remained. 
Christ alone would stand trial. Christ alone would be wrongly accused, wrongly convicted to die. Christ alone would have heaped upon him the sins of all who by faith would trust him for their salvation. Christ alone would raise victorious that the church might be risen with him as his spotless bride. When the cloud lifted, it was Jesus and Jesus alone who remained. There would be no need for booths because Jesus had come to tabernacle with his people. There would be no right standing of level hierarchy for which the booths to be erected because Christ alone is the Son who would secure salvation for those who trust in Him by faith. The men on that mountain were given a beautiful gift. And it was a gift of hope. It was a gift by which they saw the glory of God manifested in and through Jesus. And it would imprint them When Jesus looked out at them, he's then seeing the reflection of his own glory in their eyes. It's unbelievable. The order is important here. It's presented to us as glory, and then following that is his reminder of suffering. What I want you to hear is that suffering is the precursor to the glory of Jesus. And it cannot be expected, even in our Western mindset, that the ticket into Christianity, and I'm, I'm being facetious with that language, is a ticket into a respite from challenge. I do not want you, however, to equate suffering with difficult times or suffering with consequences of sinful decisions. I want you to equate suffering in this context as that suffering which comes as a result of you standing firm for the cause and sake of Christ. And as one of you shared with me after the service last week, therein lies glory. And embrace it and run to it. I want to conclude in the last second I have with you before we approach the Lord's Supper, the table, to remember the great suffering which he underwent for us. But I'd like to conclude by offering one more word of encouragement for us this morning. And I'm kind of building it upon Jesus standing alone. Imagine how the heads of Peter, James, and John must have spun. In just a matter of moments, they've, they've gone from hiking on a journey to being frightened at the display of God's glory through Jesus. 
They've seen what they've seen. They've heard what they've heard. And now they've begun trekking down the mountain and they're asking Jesus all kinds of questions, laying their bewilderment at his feet. No doubt they're concerned about the pending suffering for Jesus and the promised suffering that they would experience. But then, as is true now, the disciples did not have to travel the way of discipleship alone. And I don't mean because they had each other. But Jesus had hung alone on a tree so that they might have the confidence that he would hang alone with them. It's a stark reminder that the call to follow Christ is a call to come and die. But it is a hopeful reminder that in the midst of both glorious times and times when believers are persecuted for the sake and cause of Christ, that they are not alone. There in the midst of every occasion, Jesus is with us. There in the midst of every occasion, He, by His grace, holds us fast. He who did not depart with Elijah and Moses on that Mount of Transfiguration traveled with His disciples to Jerusalem and upon His ascension gave them the promise that He gives to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thanks be to God. That the glory of Christ returned in the person of Jesus. And in his glory, he underwent suffering so that he could be all the more glorified forever and ever. May we worship as a result. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this passage that last week taught us to think about you rightly. And this week has challenged us to see you rightly. Lord, I'm mindful that we become what we behold. Help us to behold your son Jesus in all his glory that we might become more and more like him as we follow your way and encourage our hearts this morning that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And you who died alone will hold us fast to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.